Good afternoon, and thank you for coming to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Library. Erin Gill is director of the City of Knoxville's Office of Sustainability. Ms. Gill has over five years of experience managing and implementing environmental programs in Knoxville and in Atlanta. Created by Mayor Rojero, the Office of Sustainability addresses issues relating to the environmental, economic, and social health of the Knoxville community. Ms. Gill's experience in the public sector is shored up by her academic background, which includes a master's degree in environmental management from Yale and a BA in history from the University of Notre Dame. She currently serves on the board of the East Tennessee chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council. Erin Gill. Hi. Well, thank you to Martha and to Emily in the library system um, for inviting me today. I will say first, Emily, was it 2008 when you, Madeline Weil, and I all sat down to brainstorm brown bag, green book? Yeah, so um, I have not been at this podium before, but I've been in the audience for many of these sessions and very excited to see the program come full circle to have, again, that focus on green. I know that means a lot of different things to a lot of people, but for me, it's about, as the Office of Sustainability um, explanation, it's about environmental, social, and economic health. So it's, it's not just about one, but really about trying to tie all three together. So when Emily approached me about coming in and and talking with the book sandwiched in uh, crowd, I was very excited. She asked me to talk about something related to environmental fields. So ultimately, I picked The Climate Casino by William Nordhaus. He's an economics professor, and he grew up in Albuquerque. He has an undergrad from Yale. He's a Ph.D. economist from MIT, so he's got some pretty fantastic credentials. To me, what I found interesting is that he, of course, always gets tapped for in economic committees. You know, he, he participates in all of the sort of federal economic panels, and he was a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. He served as the provost of Yale University, which is a very sort of economic finance-heavy job. It's not just about research or academia. Um, and he's going to be the chair of the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. So you have that side. But then you also have, I think, his understanding and appreciation for the natural sciences. And so he's also served on the um, National Academy of Sciences, a variety of institutions that are looking at how to uh, take scientific research and make it relevant to society. So so what Nordhaus attempts to do in Climate Casino is to consider the climate change debate from an economist's perspective, which is something that I don't think we often hear. So the book's divided in five parts. It covers a wide range. So he starts with the science of climate change, what we know extremely well, um, what we know slightly less confidently, and what we don't know. He then talks about the impacts. So um, what can we expect to see in the future, and what do those impacts cost us from an economic perspective? What are those economic damages? Uh, He talks about what to do about those impacts, so how can we address them, what's our response when we see impacts in general, but but particularly with climate, Um, sort of the three big strategies that that all throw out there, mitigation, so avoiding them, adapting to them, adaptation, and he throws out geoengineering as well, which is sort of, I think, an emerging technology-based way of potentially dealing with climate impacts. His analysis leads mitigation to emerge as a winning strategy. So what he would say is just avoid the casino altogether. Just walk by. (laughs) Don't go in. (laughs) 
part four then, so that the second part of his book says, okay, well, that's the winning strategy from an economics perspective, but how do we do that? There's a lot of different ways that we can talk about mitigating uh, climate change. So what, what is, from an economics perspective, the best way to do that? And then finally he ends, and I was, I was interested in this chapter, um, it's at the end of the book, but he talks about the politics of it. So he doesn't ignore the realities of the political situation or the social uh, situation that we live in. Um, he acknowledges that debate. He talks about reasons why uh, the debate has stuck around, why it's changed. He talks about differences just in um, public perception of science in general, so not just around climate, but around other issues, including the effect of medicine on viruses and evolution. So these other science topics that public perception shifts. It's, it's not always flat. It's not always universally accepted that science has an answer. So he talks about that. But really, he's very intentional in this book, and one of the things that I appreciated that he listens to all sides of the debate and, and of the conversation around climate change. So he reviews evidence um, in as fair and as unbiased a manner as possible. Um, and, and again, I think economics helps with that. <laughs> the other important piece that he does, and, and by offering that, that sort of even-keeled approach and an analysis-based approach, is that he really attempts to cool down the rhetoric. I think that what happens a lot of times in conversation around climate is that people get very passionate, they get very heated, and I think that in a policy realm, it's important that we take a step back, clear our heads, and say, what do we know? What can we agree on? How do we move forward? Here are the facts. Here's what we think is going to happen as a result of those facts based on science that we can agree upon, and so, and so what do we do? So I mentioned it's, it's not as alarmist as perhaps a, a picture like the climate casino with melting ice dice. I don't know if you can see that, but um, it's not as alarming as the cover might suggest. Again, I don't know. To me, economics can just be a breath of fresh air because you're like, yeah, it's math. It's charts. It's refreshing. <laughs> you know, to me, I, I really appreciated the fact that he, he made the recognition that there's definitely very real impacts that are happening based on climatic trends. Um, they're going to cause damages for human society. He, he can point to very specific ways that we're going to be significantly impacted. He also points to ways that, that we have less certainty about and acknowledges that and respects that. But the thesis of it, the reason why it's called the climate casino, is that in, in his understanding, we are rolling the climatic dice, and the outcome will produce surprises, and some of them are likely to be perilous. So again, acknowledging what we don't know and so his, his suggestion is that we have just entered the climate casino and there's still time to turn around and walk back out. <laughs> so um, I want to just sort of emphasize some important themes that I think really underlie the foundation of, of Nordhaus's thesis of this book. One important theme is that global warming begins and ends with human activities. So it begins with the unintended side effects of economic activities. We grow food, we heat homes, we go to school, we create in those transactions, those actions, externalities, CO2, other greenhouse gas emissions, as well as other pollutants. I mean, I think that we create a lot of externalities, and, and policies have attempted through time to address those. Human activities also will in large part determine the extent of damages caused by climate change. So at the same time that we are uh, potentially part of the problem, we're also very much a part of the solution. And to the extent that our systems adapt and change and respond as they have through time to forces that are unpredictable and um, sometimes unforeseen, we are still here. And we still have a pretty thriving economy and society. So human systems have the ability to reduce the damages, and, and they will. And finally, then, if we decide to do something about it, which Nordhaus would advocate that we have to, then the goal of policies will be to influence 
human activities. So again, it all it starts and ends with us is his argument. I mentioned the idea of an externality. Um, it's a it's a cost or a benefit that occurs in a market transaction. Again, I'm using lots of economic terms here, but it's where the cost or benefit accrues to a party that was not part of that transaction. So the idea of pollution is a typical externality, but there's also positive externalities. You can think about innovation being a positive externality that oftentimes happens with research. There's, there's all sorts of externalities, and you know, there's, there's things that happen when we make decisions that we don't account for in that transaction. So he also recognizes that we're having rapid economic growth around the world, and that's great. It's bringing up the standard of living. It's really changing uh, the quality of life for many people. However, because we're using carbon-based resources to fuel that growth, while the efficiency of energy has improved over time, the rate of improvement, the rate at which we're decarbonizing or the rate in which we're bringing down the CO2 emissions for our economic activity is, is not at the same rate as which we're growing. So we continue to see this trajectory of carbon emissions increasing as a result of economic activity. One of the other themes that he talks about, and this is going into the impacts and the science, there's a lot of cases where very basic, not contested science provides us a very clear lens through which to understand what's currently happening and what's expected to happen given existing trends and the impact. So we understand the greenhouse effect pretty well. Um, We know that CO2 levels exceed the levels that have been observed for the last 650,000 years. Uh, While there have been climatic changes um, in the, the course of civilization, that the speed and scope which we are currently witnessing is unprecedented through the course of human history. Uh, another basic science concept, we understand what happens when the oceans thermally expand, sea level rises. That's a if-then, this happens. Uh, it's pretty well understood and agreed upon. So we have a lot of things out of basic science um, that are, are not controversial when you distill them down to the science and the physics and, and these general concepts. Things about ocean acidification, for instance, there's, there's not a lot of disagreement on the fact that our oceans are becoming more and more acidified and we're impacting then coral reefs and, and species in the ocean. We also know about hurricanes, <laughs> and we can use pretty basic physics to understand the impacts of warming on hurricanes and the idea that they would become more intense as surface ocean temperatures increase. But he also acknowledges that there's things that aren't so easy to predict, that aren't linked as closely to that fundamental science that we can all agree upon. You know, in those cases, it becomes very hard to understand, in particular, the impacts and what the damages of those impacts could be. Thinking about the financial crisis was another analogy he used that I thought was helpful, and he pointed out that no one quite understood just how fragile the system was until it started to unravel. So there's things that we can predict, but there's also things that we say, well, there might be a weakness that we don't even know about, and so we're risking then encountering that unraveling if, if we don't acknowledge that and take action accordingly. The other analogy that I thought was very nice in terms of predicting the impact um, was a fuzzy telescope. So what is the fuzzy telescope? Think about your hometown 100 years ago. Oak Ridge didn't exist, so my hometown was not on the map, <laughs> so there's a start. Um, in, his, in Nordhaus's case, Albuquerque was dramatically different. Our societies and our world are shaped dramatically by rapid change in human systems. And to think that it is logical to take 
scientific-based impact assessment and overlay it with existing social structures, it's not going to get us results that are accurate because systems change. And so to overlay what we know about impacts with what we know about our current society may not give us a prediction that's indicative of what we'll actually see in the future because of those human systems. So when I, when I talk about systems, really, you know, what he uh, breaks them down into are managed and unmanaged, and unmanageable. <laughs> so there's a distinction there. Managed systems are things like our healthcare system, our education, our transportation, our infrastructure, our buildings, our energy structure. These are things that we pay attention to. We have markets in place to deal with them. We have leaders who understand the in and outs. They're, they're technical. They understand them. They respond. And because of that, managed systems are going to be much more lightly impacted. They make up a huge segment of the U.S. economy. So when you think about our managed system, it's about 90% of our economy are based in sectors where the impacts of climate may not be seen because we're going to so rapidly respond that our damages 100 years out may be negligible. But then you think about unmanaged system. You think about the ecosystems. You think about the health of our natural environment, waterways that flow from one side of the country to the other, our oceans that are obviously not managed by anyone. There is no Department of Ocean that, that cares about or looks at those unmanaged systems. And then there are those that are unmanageable. You think about weather. You think about hurricanes. Right now, geoengineering is nowhere close to being able to control those systems. So when you think about those types of um, realms, then that's where the impacts really start to, and the damages really start to accrue because we cannot respond to them effectively. We cannot mitigate. We cannot adapt. We're sort of stuck with what we get. <laughs> you know, we do have these managed systems, and we have a good grasp on them, but, you know, at the end of the day, where would we be if we don't have food and we don't have water and we don't have air and we don't have these natural systems that are harder to manage or, in some cases, unmanageable or not managed. So when we think about those unmanaged systems, they do have a direct impact on our natural our managed systems and our human uh, and social structures, but we need to think about how we interact with those, and I think it's important to think about what happens when those unmanaged systems really take over and impede our ability to respond. So I mentioned you know, his attribution of climate to the economy, and he does not advocate for economic stagnation. That's, that's absolutely nowhere in this book. Instead, he says very clearly that the economy will and should continue to grow. On one hand, it creates emissions, but it also makes adaptation easier. That's an important point, I think, because sometimes I think there's a rhetoric out there that economic growth is incompatible with addressing climate change. And he would argue that it's not, and, and I would strongly agree. I think that there's a lot of gains that can be made that, that can start solving these problems in a way that doesn't stymie economic growth or sort of leave the rest of the world to suffer in whatever state they might be in now. I think it's important that we remember that. So I mentioned that, that really he lands on mitigation as a strategy that we need. Adaptation and geoengineering aren't sufficient responses. He acknowledges that mitigation is tough, it is tricky, it is uh, an international policy movement that's going to be really messy to create, but he also mentions that we need to do it, and we need to do it now, and you know, he goes through an argument looking at when it is appropriate to delay action, and in some cases it is. I mean, we may not make a decision in our household because we need to wait for more facts to come in. That's totally appropriate, but he makes a very clear point that this is not one of those situations, that the cost of waiting far surpasses the cost of taking action now. But how do we mitigate? There's a lot of options for that. We think about regulation. We think about subsidies. We think about us all making choices individually because we're educated and we care. And 
what his bottom line is that policy needs to balance the cost of responding to climate change with the benefits. And the benefits in this case are the avoided damages. So we're talking about costs on both sides of the, the framework. He does not advocate for focusing on temperature limits, which I think is an interesting point to make given the conversations that we see internationally about two degrees warming. We need to limit it to two degrees warming. He says, don't focus on that. That's, that's not the target that you need to be focusing on. The target that you need to be focusing on is that equilibrium. <laughs> when you think about in high school, you had those economic grass costs, benefits. Equilibrium is where you need to focus. And that's going to the, the temperature change that's associated with that equilibrium may change. It's not stagnant. We need to, to respect that those systems um, interact. And his point would be that don't think about temperature as a way to create policy. He also acknowledges the importance of a discount rate in doing that. Discounting is something that we all do every day when we decide not to buy the more efficient car because it's more expensive and we're not sure how much money we're going to save in gas and we don't value our future expenditures or our future savings as much as we value our current expenditures. You know, there's a lot of, or at least some folks that would say that discounting isn't appropriate because it um, devalues future generations or that it undermines sort of the role that we have on the planet to, to care. And it's, it's that sort of moral um, argument of, of why we shouldn't use a discount rate. And he argues that we have, we have to. It's, just, it's, it's human nature. If we applied a discount rate to nothing, we would unravel in this sea of anxiety because we would be worried about my future self, my children, my grandchildren, my you know generations, because what you do is that you naturally discount. You naturally think about the present differently than you think about the future. So it's a natural thing that we do, and so the important point that he makes is treat it appropriately. Uh, recognize the discount rate. Choose one that reflects your values but doesn't tilt in such a way that you're not paying any attention or that you're likewise paying too much attention uh, to the current uh, values of, of money. Uh, and I think we can all think about different policies that we might use to address carbon. We have regulation. We have subsidies, education. He makes a great point about regulation. He does not want environmental regulations. He thinks that uh, regulation is the wrong way to go in terms of putting regulations on power plants or, or um he looks at the CAFE standards and says this is an uneconomically optimal way of, of doing this. This is not, the, from the economics perspective, the ideal solution. And what do we all love more than regulation? Taxes. <laughs> so he comes down on the tax side. He thinks that a carbon tax, a price on carbon specifically, a price on carbon is the most economically optimal way to address carbon through mitigation. The reason why is that it provides signals to consumers about what goods and services have a high carbon content and therefore should be used sparingly. So he's putting that price on the externality and allowing us to make decisions that incorporate it. He is taking it from being an externality to being part of the market transaction. A price on carbon also provides signals to producers about which inputs are less carbon intensive and therefore incents them to move to low carbon technologies in order to lower costs for them and increase their profits. So you're seeing the business community being able to respond in a way that they've been responding to different price points throughout history. And then the other important point is that a price on carbon gives market incentives for innovation and invention to develop and introduce low carbon alternatives. So it allows the market to innovate and find new choices by which people can then change their consumption patterns. So when he thinks about the difference between cap and trade and a carbon tax, which are both prices on carbon, he argues they're 
from an economics perspective, identical. They're going to have the same impact. Now, there's some practical reasons why we might like one or the other. Some of the, the sort of pros and cons of both, and one that I found interesting, is that if you have a carbon tax, you could potentially, in theory, get rid of government debt on one hand. So you could say this is a new uh, income stream to reduce government debt, which I know is something a lot of people are concerned about. But you can also keep the government income neutral and offset the carbon tax by reductions in taxes in other areas so that the net impact on households or on businesses is neutral. A tax does not need to be purely thought of as an increase. It's also fairly straightforward in terms of implementation. We have a pretty good system for collecting taxes. Uh, The government is pretty good at it, and so it puts this policy solution firmly in their wheelhouse. But the other idea is cap-and-trade, and cap-and-trade, of course, has gotten a lot of attention over the years and has made some traction on a regional level. Sort of New England area has tried it. There's been some places around the world that have tried it. I think that it's certainly more complicated to do that. It requires a lot more of a infrastructure to facilitate cap-and-trade. But his point is that, you know, we're going to get there the same whether we put a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade. So pick one that works best for your market, um, and you're going to, to get the economically optimal outcome. You know, the two central lessons is that we, we need to create policies so that firms and people and our social structures recognize economic incentives to tilt behavior in a way that reduces climate change. That's going to get us the results. It's going to reduce the damages. Um, and we can do that in a way that's economically optimal. We have to create policy because markets right now are not creating that incentives on their own. The last part of this book, Chapter 5, talks about the politics of climate change. And, you know, he's an economist, and so he walks through the scenario of what happens if you're a conservative? How would you interpret these arguments? And, you know, his argument, he's saying, well, yeah, it would convince anybody. But I think what's compelling is that because you can look at it from economics and you can say, we've got basic science, we can use that basic science to predict impact, we can value those impacts and understand the expected damages that we're going to create, and then we can decide through policy and through various market mechanisms how we can avoid those damages and avoid those negative impacts on our future selves. And so his, his argument then is that the logic is clear, you know, it's, it's there. And obviously it's simply, it's, it's way more complicated than that, as, as I think we can all gather from the current conversation. But, you know, again, he's been trying to take the ide- ideology out of it. He's been trying to take the emotion out of it. And I think he succeeded in that. And I think if you read the book, you'll recognize that there's a lot of very even-keeled analysis that comes through. And while it respects values through economics, It does not use values as the underlying um, reason for action. So uh, we'll discuss. Hi, I'm Damian Messer. I uh, happen to be very interested in computer modeling, and I understand that our author is famous for two different computer Mm -hmm. models, the rice and the dice model. Mm I can understand very well how computer modeling is useful in closed systems, but as you brought out in economic questions, there are a lot of externalities. It doesn't seem to me that an economic question it lends itself to computer modeling, period. Does the mm-hmm. author address that at all in the book? Yeah, he does, and it comes in sort of the latter half when he's talking about 
the economic optimality of the carbon tax. And we can draw the pretty economic charts that show a very clear equilibrium. And we can say, that's it, problem solved. And it's, he, he recognizes it's not the simple. And he, he references one in particularly interesting phenomenon called energy cost myopia. And what that is, it's when we discount future energy savings 20%, which is an astronomically high discount rate. I mean, typically we're, we're arguing over whether the discount rate should be 2%, 5%, maybe 7%. 20% is illogical. <laughs> but we do it every day when we don't buy that more efficient fridge or we don't drive that more efficient car. And so he he definitely recognizes the importance of behavioral economics, of psychology, of these social sciences that are really emerging as very instrumental in informing policies about how real people, you and I, will actually respond to these different price signals. So um, to that extent, he does address it. Obviously, he's a big fan of the DICE model, but it is not the only model that he uses. And he really references and goes into um, both critiques and support of other models that have been used by other schools of thought or other institutions. I'm Jack Fowles from Oak Ridge National Lab. Aaron, very nice talk, by the way. And uh, I do uh, appreciate the fact that he doesn't really focus on two-degree change. People, I don't think, can really relate to two degrees Mm -hmm. and what that really means for the future. But I was wondering if he talked at all about risk in in terms particularly on how it's uh, reflected in, say, insurance. People won't understand two degrees, but if their insurance goes up because where their home is or whatever is more exposed to risk, whether it's drought or flood or whatever, I think that will be very meaningful to people. He did not talk about insurance rates, which is interesting because those insurance companies are paying attention. (laughs) And they're looking at the climate assessments, and they are very strategically and mathematically incorporating potential damages into their premium rates. So it's interesting that I think the insurance companies are responding in a way that, in a lot of ways, our our government maybe isn't right now or or folks aren't aware of. The other piece, though, is that he does use the insurance analogy pretty frequently, and he evokes that idea of mitigation being a necessary insurance policy because you don't get insurance because of the positive things that might happen. You get insurance to protect you against the worst things that could happen. And so mitigation and response strategies are insurance against the risks uh, that he outlines for a sort of global future. What is what he's saying is raise taxes, either cap and trade or, or just a straight tax increase. You know, that means consumers and users are going to be paying higher prices. And politicians are more interested in getting elected than they are saving the world, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes, definitely true short-term thinkers. I think their discount rate is the future <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, I guess it's just, you know, whereas regulation, it may not be the best economically, but it may be more politically feasible. I was trying to see if I had, I had written down my notes about regulation and he makes some good points about how we do politically justify the CAFE standards. It's not that they're bad policies. They're not economically optimal policies, but they have their reasons. And I, he, he goes into some of the explanations for why they come about. And it has to do with what we're used to, what we can tolerate, 
how the lobby industry works, just to put it bluntly. <laughs> so who the entrenched interests are and what they're willing to tolerate and, and how they speak to their politicians that are making these decisions. So absolutely, the political reality is is huge. I think what his economic point, admittedly, would be is that as we start to encounter these changes, the damages are going to start accruing in real time. And to the extent that those impacts are felt economically, then there's going to become more and more economic present interest in responding to them. Um, But there is an important, I mean, there is an important acceptance that, you know, whether or not our politicians are thinking past the four-year election cycle, I do care about my future. And there is, I think, more acceptance among the population to think about long-term. And to the extent that that pressure can be passed up to politicians, I think, is how the democratic system is supposed to work. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it, economics is, a, is an idealized way of finding solutions, and I think it can be very practical, but it certainly does not get us past our issues when it comes, comes to just how, how decisions are made up in Washington. I don't know if anyone has a good explanation for how decisions are made up in Washington these days. <laughs> Renee? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to follow up on her question, actually, because he said on the one hand that he doesn't think regulation works, and yet he was suggesting policies. And I was wondering if he had any idea of how you get a policy to be implemented without regulation. And then as a follow-up question, you know, he talked about how people may not be able to understand a 2% increase, but they, you mentioned an equilibrium point, and mm-hmm. did he say who decides what that equilibrium point is and what it looks like? Mm-hmm. To me, some of the things that he's suggesting sounded rather vague. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that's part of me not being an economist and not wanting to get up here and talk about math. Um, <laughs> So, so first, regulation. I think there's a difference between regulation and enforcement. So he would not advocate um, that we don't need very clear rules in place to implement a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system. I think that he very much acknowledges that there's some institutional parameters that have to be set up. Um, his point about regulation is that regulations tend to apply sector by sector or technology by technology, and it's, it would be not as effective for us to try to regulate every single piece because we're always going to have things that fall through the gaps and the collective impact of regulating those sectors is not going to be as great as if you price carbon and let the market respond. The other piece of that, so equilibrium, you know, if, if you think about the cost, so, so they have a, a, a chart, you know, and it's got, you know, dollars and temperature on the bottom. And it's talking about, you know, you have one curve that evaluates the financial economic damages, the, the impacts, the, the costs that are associated if we start moving up that temperature curve. So they start out fairly s- small. You know, if we just have one degree warming, our impacts might not be as strong as if we have six degree warming. And there's oftentimes a trajectory where it goes up very quickly. Um, on the other side, you have the costs of mitigation. And what that really is are the benefits. So you're avoiding future damages. And so that's a benefit. And so that starts up very high because, you know, there's a high cost that's going to get lower as you um, sort of move up the temperature framework. Or do I have that wrong? Um, Right. So the benefits of avoiding climate change also increase as we get higher up the temperature scale, because if you're avoiding that six degree warming, the benefits are going to be greater than if you avoided one degree warming. Um, But anyway, there's a point where those lines cross. 
And so it's a visual equilibrium where if you see it on a graph, you're like, that's it, that's Nash, you know, that's, that's the, the, the point at which we need to be. Um, you know, I, I, to the point about how economics perhaps is no less opaque or no less relatable than a two-degree uh, warming, I think is, is certainly valid. Who's at the uh, mic? <laughs> Jim. Aaron, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you uh, start out by saying he takes ideology off the table, but this is almost pure ideology. I mean, basically, here's a guy who believes that market solutions and the crossing of the two lines is the, the solution point of everything when the two lines depend on what you put in to start with. Uh, then he depends on endless growth to pay for it, which uh, that's a questionable uh, premise in and of itself. And finally, he believes in the remote possibility of... Uh, Congress or, I don't know, the United Nations <laughs> or someone to come up with some smart policy. Uh, this all seems a bit remote to me. Optimistic, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so right, he, he does say that he has not written off the policy process. <laughs> he still sees, I think, a light at the end of in a tunnel. I, I tend to be in that camp, too. I think if I were to wash away any hope of a policy solution that we'd all just go home. <laughs> so I'm not as pessimistic as that. The second point about ongoing continuing economic growth, I think that, you know, in recognizing these modeling complexities, he would not say that it's, like, inevitable that economic growth would continue, and I don't think that he just sees unboundless economic growth for all countries. I mean, I think he recognizes that if you look at the, the global economy, it's going to continue to grow because there are areas that haven't been tapped yet um, that, are, that are still on the increasing trajectory, but certainly that there's a plateau. But I think he sees that future being much further down the road than when we're going to start to experience climate impacts we're going to have to deal with. And so the, the more money that countries have, the, the better they're going to be able to respond to those impacts. So there's, it's the timeline. You know, I think that ultimately he would not argue that – I don't know, maybe he would. He didn't talk about it, whether economic growth just continues forever, indefinitely. And then to the first point about, yeah, he is, he's an economist and he buys into the economic theories that, that underlie that. You know, to the point about ideology, I think you're right to point out that being an economist is itself perhaps one way of looking at the world that is not uh, unarguable, that people could say, well, I'm not an economist and I see the world differently. But I think when I use the term ideology, I think on one hand it takes as a starting point places that we agree rather than places where we disagree. And, you know, it's not based on uh, religion. It's not based on preference. It's not based on... um, experience. It's sort of based on principles that, you know, at least through a lot of the world are acknowledged and used to create policy and have been used to create policy and create the society that we have today. So I wouldn't say it's absent of that. I think you raise a a good critique, but it did do a nice job of taking out the emotion and and some of that heated debate that we sometimes find ourselves in 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 the climate conversation. Robin. Here in your, you're the city's sustainability person. How do you go about picking the issues that you want to work on personally and the city to work on, and then how do you rank those in terms of the resources you have and the work you can do? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about sort of our sustainability office and, and my priorities and why I prioritize that. I'm very interested right now in energy efficiency. We had a, a pretty robust effort a couple of years ago. We retrofitted 99 city buildings. We are seeing the economic returns from those retrofits. We're saving money. We've reduced our carbon emissions 13% in municipal operations in large part because of that energy efficiency, as well as some other, you know, waste, um, our recycling program. There's a lot of other factors that go into that. But 
I'm an advocate of energy efficiency, and I mentioned that energy cost myopia. It's a challenge that there's there's savings that are out there that we're not capturing. And so one of the big things that I'm working on is, as I know you, Robin, know, but, you know, really trying to connect energy efficiency with those folks who cannot access it now because it can be expensive up front because it's a somewhat difficult thing to wrap your head around. It's not just as simple as buying a more efficient fridge. There's a lot of savings to be had in weatherizing your home, which is a more complicated task than just picking out a new fridge at Home Depot. So we've got an effort, the Smarter Cities Partnership, that's really working on the energy efficiency piece and trying to push those potential savings, that potential economic benefit as well as social benefit and environmental benefit that we gained at the city into the community so that more people can benefit from that. So that's one way that I really see. I think that it's something that crosses the mitigation, it's adaptation, because as we saw this winter, um, and not necessarily so much this summer, but in past summers have seen that when you have very high temperatures or very cold temperatures, that it's very hard for a lot of people to meet the energy bills that come with that. So energy efficiency can be considered in that regard an adaptation measure. It's something that reduces the damages. And then it's also, you know, creating environmental benefits, economic benefits, social benefits. To me, it's a sort of a win, 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 win. So that, that's certainly where I try to find places that can engage and can empower and can make a difference and for a lot of people and be something that a lot of people can see and benefit from. That's where I would like to prioritize. Didn't Australia attempt some form of carbon pricing and uh, recently backtrack on it? I think you may be right. I haven't dug into Australian politics as of late, but I did see the headline that I think they had gone backward on their climate policy. So that... Perhaps doesn't bode well for that for his favorite strategy in the book. But yeah, what else is there? Well, I think that you know, I think it points to the the complexity of the social and political systems. I think that I wouldn't say that he. I don't think I would look at Australia and say this is proof that it's not economically optimal. Maybe not socially optimal. And I, or I easy. guess maybe the bottom line does go back to his book, and that he talks about the willingness to pay is mm-hmm. you know a few, few bucks a, a ton, while while the cost of the externalities yeah. is fifteen to. $150 or something like that. So people are just not willing to pay for it, and that would be reflected in the, in the politics. Yeah, and that's why I was really interested in the... So he puts it at about $25 a ton is where he would he would advocate for. He thinks that that's where the equilibrium point would be. Yeah, yeah and the interesting thing about the 20... is I was just looking at the book here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the $25 a ton is it, it really only changes spending by about 1%. 1%, household, yeah. Average household... Yeah, spending. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, which I'm not sure I'd look at it as spending. What you what you have is you have less to spend on the things that you want to spend. You, you don't really spend more because of this, but there's a money there's a transfer of money through the, by the tax to the government, and then the government has that money to spend. So I'm not right. sure how that ends up as a as an impact because there's still the same same flow of money in the economy. So I think the way that I interpreted that was that so his analysis predicted that with that 25 per ton carbon price at the cost of all consumption for the average US household which includes I think his A to Z was abacuses to Zwibex. So let's just say everything in between your energy, your housing costs, your food costs, your clothing costs. Um, all of that together that the cost of that consumption would rise slightly less than 1%. So I took that to mean that, you know, if I'm spending 
you know, $40,000 now that we'd see a 1% increase on that $40,000. So there is a transfer. I mean, because that carbon tax does ultimately go to the pot that the government keeps. That's why I think his point about, you know, the, the idea of reducing other taxes, if we're not looking at it as we need this money to reduce debt or make major investments, that you could potentially reduce other taxes so that the net impact would be similar. I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about it. But yeah, I was interested to see that it's it's less than one, I think, when we hear carbon tax, we imagine a pretty significant impact. And, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the idea of 1% not being significant. For a lot of families, it would be. But when we think about how prevalent carbon is in what we consume and how we live, it's interesting that it's, it's reasonably low, perhaps. Thank you so much for Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.